if the concentration is upon pleasing God and worshiping him, not on just educating, though we will hope that some hymns will educate, not on healing wounds, though of course where God is, there will be healing, and not on, certainly not on uh, atmospherics and, and producing an emotion, but on God. I, I think that's the beginning of true worship. Well, hey everyone, what is up? Welcome or welcome back to my channel. My name is Austin and this is Gospel Simplicity, a place where we seek to bring simplicity out of theological and historical complexity. Today we're exploring the question of worship, what it is, what it looked like in the early church, and perhaps what it ought to look like today and how we should show up in it. I am joined by none other than Dr. Edith M. Humphrey, who is a brilliant Orthodox New Testament scholar, and we're discussing her wonderful book, Grand entrance. I think you're really going to enjoy it. It's a far-ranging conversation that goes from Old Testament roots of worship to the New Testament to early Christian kind of tradition, how it impacted Eastern liturgies growing up. Then we even talk about the importance of fiction. We cover all of that in the next hour, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. Before you get to it, I want to say a real quick thank you to my patrons, subscribers, and merch buyers who make this channel possible, especially my patrons, those who give monthly to the channel to help it keep going and growing. Thank you all so much. If you want to become a patron, and get all types of fun perks like missing me describing all of this, skipping the ads, getting the video early, being part of the Discord server, and being part of the book club we're currently going through on social justice by St. Basil. You can go to patreon.com slash gospel simplicity. With all that being said, here is the interview. Dr. Edith M. Humphrey is William F. Orr, Professor Emerita of New Testament at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, an Orthodox Christian, and a grandmother of 22 grandchildren. Originally from Canada, she and her husband, Chris, have lived in Pittsburgh since 2002. Though retired, she continues to write and to teach in various milieu and enjoys playing piano duos with a good friend. Her academic interests include visionary biblical literature, C.S. Lewis, theological anthropology, and patristic reception of the Bible, represented in numerous articles and 10 books, several of which have been translated into Russian. Currently, she is anticipating the release of Mediation in the Immediate God in June of this year, and her most recent children's novel, Down in the Valley, will come out in winter of this year, 2023. Well, Edith, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's, it um, is... it's no privilege. Oh, well, the, the pleasure is all mine. And today we're going to be excited, talking about your excellent book, Grand Entrance Worship as in Heaven. And before this interview, we were talking about potential topics because as people heard in that uh, introduction, you have pretty wide ranging academic interests. You've written extensively. There's so much we could talk about. We could fill episodes and episodes with your expertise. But when we were talking about what we might want to talk about for today, you mentioned that in part, the research for this book, Grand Entrance, was what led you to conversion to Eastern Orthodoxy. So could you talk me through that journey a bit? Sure. I mean, some people are very cynical and they think that folks come to orthodoxy from other Christian bodies simply because they're fleeing from what they perceive to be inadequate communities. And um, certainly there are those who find in orthodoxy what they were not able to find, at least in fullness, in their original setting as Christians. But for me, there was a very long process of discovering about worship 
and discovering about the nature of the church. My childhood church was Salvation Army. I'm a fourth generation Salvationist. My grandfather in Scotland was one of those young boys who went into the smaller parts of the uh, of the coal mines uh, that the uh, grown-ups couldn't get into, and he helped his father in that way. And so we really do owe the Salvation Army a great debt um, a gratitude for coming and rescuing my family from that kind of degradation. So that was my childhood uh, church. And my husband and I actually were Salvation Army officers for five years, which is the equivalent of clergy working together. And uh, then for a very short time, we were in an independent church. But for a longer time, about almost 25 years, we were Anglicans. And it was there that we started to ask the question, what is the church? But of course, as many know, the Anglican Church has been going through crisis, and uh, especially this year in Great Britain with the uh, turmoil that's going there, uh, on there with regards to sexuality. There are many questions that are being asked within the Anglican Communion, and we were part of that uh, questioning, uh, especially back in the 90s when we were younger adults. So for me, there was a kind of a push out as I started to think about whether or not Anglicanism was a viable communion, but there was also a really long draw in. Um, for 13 years, I was in discernment about orthodoxy. And that happened when I was teaching one summer in a Catholic university and I met orthodox students who could tell that um, there was something going on in my life that was disturbing me and they took an interest in me and they took me to an Orthodox Vesperal service where I met Father Maxim Lissak. This was in Ottawa and um, he spent a lot of time talking with me about books, about ideas and about my personal life. And also we would we would go off to worship whenever we could. It was difficult because I was the um, I was the uh, music director at the uh, local Anglican church there. So I had to be on most of the time. But whenever there were feasts or times that we could, we would go off to the Orthodox Church. And there was this ineluctable pull for me seeing something there that I had not seen in fullness anywhere else. And I had many, many questions that remained. And that was the problem, for especially for me. The big question was the special status of Holy Mary, the Theotokos, the God-bearer. I had actually worked through the possibility of um, prayers a conversation with the saints because it seemed quite logical to me when I talked to my Orthodox friends. We asked for the prayers of our friends who are living. Why wouldn't we ask for the prayers of those who are close to Christ? Since Jesus says that God is the God of the living, not the dead. They're not dead, but they're with him. So that wasn't a problem. But for me, the special status of Mary rankled. There were hymns that I found too extravagant and so on. And all this to say, when I was working on this book and I was working on Isaiah chapter six, I discovered as a literary scholar that there were many tensions in that chapter. For example, how many angels are there? Are there two or many? Um, or are we to think of God as holy, 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 separate from creation or all his glory fills the earth? as the angels sing. So I, I saw that I saw that channel going on or that 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 conflict or that that um, tension going on. But then I saw that there was a really interesting tension. And that is that Isaiah is cleansed by having a coal put directly on his lips. 
But at the same time, that coal is mediated by an angel who picks it up with tongs. So there's both an immediate touch of God for Isaiah, but a mediation. And those two things go together. And the very week that I was working on that, I happened to be walking around our living room and my husband had already become orthodox at this point. He'd waited for long enough, he thought. And on the, on the coffee table, there was a magazine that he edited. He's an editor. And there was a call out there. And it had in the call out of this article, this hymn of orthodoxy. Christ, the coal of fire, whom holy Isaiah foresaw, now rests in the arms of the Theotokos, that is in the arms of Mary, as in a pair of tongs, and he is given to the elder Simeon. And it was just like that, that I realized if Isaiah could have an immediate touch of God that was mediated, why not the rest of us have an immediate access to God that is nevertheless mysteriously mediated to us by the one who held him in her arms. So that was that was sort of the last um, penny to drop for me, but it had been a very, very long time coming. And it had to do with theological questions, questions having to do with the church, questions having to do especially with the communion of saints at the end. And also the question of what is the church? Is it just a voluntary society or is it something tangible that's passed down from the apostles even to today? And I came to think this isn't just a voluntary association or a club that we join, but this is something that's already living. It is the vine and we're grafted into it. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that journey. And it's fascinating to see how this research impacted it, specifically Isaiah 6, which we're going to dive into a bit more later on as well. Personally, I also just appreciate the fact that you mentioned that it, it was a long journey. And on in my own uh, journey of exploring church history, I often get people, since I'm doing it somewhat publicly, saying, oh, it's been like a year. Come on, what are you doing? Um, but I, I appreciate hearing your story there. Father wanna... Max used to always say, God is not in a hurry. When I was I in anxiety that. over not knowing what to do yet, God is not in a hurry. And that was very, very releasing for me. I bet it was. I'm going to carry that with mm -hmm. me from this conversation. So in the first chapter of your book, Grand Entrance, you raise this idea of false worship. And you write that false worship stems, at least in part, from a false individualism that is so pervasive in the modern world. Could you talk about this relationship between individualism and false worship? Yeah, so I, I guess I would say that unless individualism is absolutely um, all-consuming, we're probably not talking about false worship, but about distorted worship, about a worship that uh, pays way too much attention to the worshiper and not enough to the God who is being worshiped. Um, there is, after all, something about God's relationship with us that is intensely personal. Uh, think about the sour grapes passage in the prophet, where um, the old covenant was more governed by the corporate, but there is now a personal one-on-one -on -one responsibility before God um, to listen and to obey and to respond. But the idea that we have today, I think, and I, th I think is a very strong one, that I exist most, I'm most myself when I'm in isolation, 
without regard to my role or my family or the group that I belong to, um, that is relatively new and it's really pervasive and it's very damaging, it seems to me, particularly when we get into the area of worship. Um, religion then becomes something that I see that is for my benefit, uh, not something that rightly describes reality, um, not something that joins me to a body, uh, but something not something that even demands my love and attention, but something that will benefit me, something that will make me more who I am. Um, <clears throat> but liturgy, the, the name uh, means simply, the word means simply the work of the people, all the people, not just one. And so right worship does have to do with orienting ourselves towards God, ourselves towards God, not just myself, and praising him. So... Yeah, when people start to measure whether uh, a service has been successful, a meeting has been successful because it's been therapeutic or it's been educational or it's been a great emotional experience or it's strengthened me or it's fulfilled me for kingdom work or it's even built up the human relationships within the community of the church. I think all those are inadequate criteria for what worship is because praising God first is key and then all these other things are added to us all of them fall into place this video is brought to you in part by faithful counseling faithful counseling is an organization of christian counselors that exists to help you get the help you need you can find them by going to faithfulcounseling.com gospel simplicity and when you use that link which you can find in the description down below you will get 10 percent off your first month and they'll pair you up with a licensed mental health counselor in under 48 hours. Once you've been paired up with a counselor, you can reach them via instant message, phone call, video call, and more. I think you will really enjoy this, and I think it could be the first step on your journey to greater mental health. And mental health problems affect all of us, religious, non-religious, old, young, every demographic feels the weight of mental health. But there are resources available, and you don't need to go through this alone, which is why I encourage you to reach out to the amazing people at Faithful Counseling by using that link, faithfulcounseling.com slash gospel simplicity, and taking your first step towards healing and wholeness in your mental health. Yeah, and you read my mind with where I want to go next, because we so often do describe services with this question of, or we react to them like, I'm just not getting fed, which is such an interesting metaphor, because most of us in adulthood aren't generally fed by others. We generally do that on our own. But for some reason, we take this metaphor into church and we expect to kind of be passive recipients of the service. And it's very individual as well. What did I get out of this? It just, I didn't really feel it today. I wasn't, wasn't, you know, for me, this church isn't feeding me, et cetera, et cetera. And you talk, you have a little bit of a vignette, I think at the intro or beginning of the book where it's a conversation around a dinner table, I think, in your family mm -hmm. about, you know, how was the service and response? Like it was the liturgy, but like, you know, and how, how do you respond to it and how do you evaluate a service? Because I, I think this is an interesting question. I think a lot of people that watch this might recognize, you know, what? yeah, our modern paradigm of like, was I fed by the service is probably a bit individualistic and it's also mm -hmm. probably a bit too passive. But how should we evaluate a service if it's not from this perspective of individualism and just being a passive recipient? What would what kind of metaphor or what kind of criteria would we use to say, ah, this was this was a good and faithful and beautiful liturgy, or maybe this was suboptimal in some way? What would be a better way of looking at that? Yeah, well, I, I actually wonder whether the question 
um, of assessment is in itself a problem. If we have an attitude, uh, the critical, and I don't mean negative, but I mean we go to worship looking to critique it either positively or negatively. I mean, even when people say, oh, God showed up, I want to say, um, wasn't he there inviting you to begin with? What do you mean God showed up? You think this is your creation. So it seems to me that where a worship service um, recognizes God's priority, recognizes that worship is something that is always going on around the throne of God and we're being invited into it, um, recognizes that many good things can happen, but the main thing is adoring God and confessing before God the truth about ourselves and about him and about the world. That's a truthful worship service. It may be missing some elements from my perspective. I mean, for me, um, the whole historical development of the liturgy is very important. And I think it's like having a balanced meal. There are many things that have to go into a worship service to make it as full as it can be. But if the concentration is upon pleasing God and worshiping him, not on just educating, though we will hope that some hymns will educate, not on healing wounds, though of course where God is, there will be healing, and not on, certainly not on uh, atmospherics and, and producing an emotion, but on God. I, I think that's the beginning of true worship. That's really helpful as a as a diagnostic that at the very end that the focus is on God there. Of course, there's so much more to be said, like you mentioned of there's the historic worship and the elements of it, like you'd have a fully balanced meal, but at the very least having that, that focus on God seems so utterly obvious on one level, but is so glaringly absent from the way that many of us think about our services or liturgies, which I must say, I did chuckle a little bit in the beginning of that book when uh, you mentioned your I think it was your husband that corrected the person that said how was service with it was liturgy because when I made one of my first ever videos about going to an orthodox liturgy divine liturgy mm -hmm. I think I used the term service a couple of times and the number of comments I got about that saying <laughs> it's a liturgy not a service I learned my lesson hopefully um, so it made me smile reading that but at the heart of your book is this idea and uh, it's in the title as well of worship as an act of entrance. You write, mm -hmm. worship is responding to God's own invitation that we should see more and more clearly who God is, hear more and more clearly what he is saying, be more and more thankful about his mighty actions. And this is key, enter more deeply into his communion with us and his care for the world. So how did you arrive at this idea of entrance specifically being central to biblical worship? Yeah. I, I don't remember, honestly, the sequence in my thinking, but I can think of the combination of things that were happening in my life at the time. First of all, it was the reading of Isaiah 6 and seeing that Isaiah was swept up into something larger than himself. No doubt he was in the temple at the time, but he saw the temple of temples and he saw the angelic worshipers um, and he saw the king of kings. And by means of that vision was connected with God's own concern for, the, for, for Israel, 
for the people. So that was part of it. It started me to think about how worship enlarges us, how it draws us into mystery. And yet it's not unpractical. Just as Isaiah was drawn into ministry, so he was given a mission. And so he saw the King of Kings, he saw the Holy One, he heard the angels, but then he was given something to do among human beings. So that was part of it. I think also reading Father Alexander Schmemann's For the Life of the World um, and coming to see something of his, um, of his view of the whole cosmos as sacramental, how everything that God has made can be used by God to draw us into reality and to draw us into his presence. That would have been part of it. Part of it was also the relief of being taken out of myself when I actually went to liturgical worship. Um, no longer I was being asked to take my spiritual temperature and see if I was right with God. Um, no longer was I being asked to sit like a student in a lecture hall and take notes. Um, I wasn't asked to have an emotional experience and um, wasn't led to wonder whether in fact I was spiritual if I didn't have that kind of an emotional experience. There was something else that was going on in this liturgical worship that was drawing me out of these concerns and out of myself towards God himself. And so I started to think about the presence of God and his angels and the saints as primary and that that worship goes on always as we see in Revelation 4 and 5 before the throne. I mean, I think also, sorry, I just smacked my computer. No worries. I think also um, that uh, what was very important for me was the, the, the episode of the transfiguration where Jesus takes his three inner disciples with him up the mountain and we Orthodox say it was Mount Tabor. And there they see him in conversation with Moses and Elijah, representative of the law and the prophets, representative of the living and the dead, because Moses died, but Elijah um, did not. He was taken up in the whirlwind. And they're talking with Jesus about the ordeal that he's going to accomplish in his exodus when he brings deliverance to the world. And at the end, two things happen. First of all, they hear the voice, this is my son, listen to him. But secondly, in Luke's version, the three of them themselves enter the glory cloud. They're brought into the mysterious presence of God. And for Orthodox, that is a picture of what God intends to do with each of us. He doesn't intend just to make us believers, just to forgive our sins. He intends to share his glory with us as together with him and with all the saints, uh, we enter into glory. So yeah. those are all the things that were happening. Yeah, what an interesting convergence of different influences going through there and it strikes me as you were talking about it that entrance really is such a poignant word to describe the experience of going to an orthodox liturgy i remember mm -hmm. the first time i did it and i was reflecting on this recently in a video comparing just different uh liturgies mass etc and 
there's something of that relief that is difficult to put into words, but of not having that pressure of conjuring up this emotional experience, right? Which is so much of what I grew up in. And these, uh, it wasn't a charismatic church, but I'd say the worship was fairly charismatic and very produced. Mm -hmm. And the goal was that you walked away with this feeling that Mm -hmm. you felt like you had to build yourself up to each week rather than entering into something far bigger than yourself. It's it's a great word, and not only because it's biblical, um, is it fantastic there, which you display so well in your book, but it also is just a keen word to describe an Orthodox divine liturgy. I want to drill down a little bit into one of the key texts that you explore in your book, and it's already come up once today. And you talk about Isaiah 6. Now, you gave mm-hmm. a brief picture of what's going on there um, in your original story. Here, I want to talk specifically about how you see this text shaping early Christian worship. Mm-hmm. And that helped shape your own conception of, of what's okay in worship, as you describe it. But how do we see this text kind of having a, a long afterlife, if you will, in terms of liturgy? Right. Well, I mean, it starts in the Bible because Ezekiel, uh, or Ezekiel Isaiah, Ezekiel does too, <laughs> Isaiah 6 feeds directly into the vision that John has in Revelation chapter four and five, when he sees the one who's on the throne surrounded by the four strange beings. And there you've got a blending of the seraphim, uh, you know, Isaiah and the cherubim, um, Ezekiel, you've got that blending together and then surrounded by the elders and surrounded by all the faithful and then surrounded by the entire cosmos worshiping him. So we see the first use of um, Isaiah, though that probably is a little bit too mannered to talk about what happens with John, but John knows Isaiah and the vision that he has um, and Isaiah 6 mutually interpret each other. So we see that and and think about what happens with John. He's told, come up here and I will show you. And so he enters into the heavenly realm and and sees what God is up to and sees what the rest of the cosmos is doing and worshiping him. So that's really, you know, the the big uh, event in the book of Revelation. Um, Eventually, when you get to the full-blown Eastern Orthodox worship, it is structured by two entrances. The little entrance, which has to do with the reading of the gospel, and the great entrance. Um, in my book, I've said grand entrance because I wanted I wanted to stress the grandeur of God, but the great entrance is the name, and that uh, is the beginning of the actual communion service. So in the early, uh, early days, um, you know, there was a, a liturgy of the word and there was a liturgy um, of the of communion or of the Eucharist. And people who were catechumens or who were seekers, inquirers, came to the first part. And then they were dismissed and they went to have classes while the faithful who were baptized went into communion. And, um, and now I've, I've jumped and I'm going to go back a little bit. But um, in the communion service, when communion is handed out, um, to Orthodox, it, it, it's um, both the, the, the element of bread, the element of wine, um, um, which have been consecrated, are in one cup. And a spoon is used. And I bet you didn't know this, but the spoon is called tongs. And so there's a deliberate um, 
uh, a deliberate memory of Mary handing the, the Lord Jesus to Simeon. And what's happening at the communion service is that we are being given the Lord Jesus to hold as well. So that is the grand, uh, when that, when all that starts, when that, that, um, when the communion start, service starts, that, that is the entrance. And actually, interestingly, in the older days, um, the, the little entrance was uh, as they t- made pilgrimage from um, various places to the main cathedral or church. And then um, the second part, uh, the grand entrance had to do with the actual communion service. Um, anyway, but, but even before that, we have Isaiah in all kinds of examples. Um, I'm just gonna do a couple of little bits where you can see elements of Isaiah and the, uh, and the uh, um, angels um, in the Eastern uh, context. Um, the first would be in, um, uh, in the liturgy of Ade and Mari. And in that we have some beautiful language. I'm having trouble finding it actually, there we go. No worries. Yeah, some beautiful language. Here is the anaphora, or the beginning of the uh, of a liturgical service. It says, "Let your minds be on high. A thousand thousands of those on high, Lord, worship Thy Majesty. Ten thousand thousands of the armies of ministers in fire and praise it in fear. Together with the cherubim and seraphim, they cry one to another, and they say, Holy, holy, holy." Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Glory be to thee, O Christ. So there's Isaiah right there. That's and then just later real on. Quick in, for, yeah, uh, yeah, just real quick for the audience that might not be familiar. Adai and Mari, yeah. who are we talking about there if those are unfamiliar names? So um, it's, it's an ancient liturgy from Syria, and we don't know who they are, but Wonderful. it's a Syrian liturgy, and it maybe goes back as early as the third century. Okay, okay? thank you so much. Sorry to interrupt yeah. you. No, no, that's good. Thank you for doing that. I, I sometimes forget people don't know. And then the liturgy um, that's associated with St. James, um, it's likely our oldest surviving complete worship with that with the liturgy of Ade and Mari we only have fragments but with this one we have the whole thing and it's sometimes even done today it's especially done um, in uh, in in some um, cultural settings but all orthodox do it from time to time it's done in India it's done in Syria but all orthodox use it from time to time and you'll hear the same thing um, let all mortal flesh keep silence with fear and trembling stand for the King of kings and Lord of lords advances to be slain and given as food to the faithful. Before him go the choir of angels with every rule and authority, the many-eyed cherubim and the six-winged seraphim, veiling their sight and crying out the hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. And then in the two major services that are used by most Orthodox today, the one associated with St. John Chrysostom and the one associated with St. Basil, the beginning of the service actually has the priest say these words, blessed is the kingdom and blessed is the entrance of the saints into the kingdom of the Father. So there is this sense of entering in before you even get to the actual communion service, which happens quite a bit later. But this sense that you're already entering into God's presence. And with it's like it's kind of like going into the temple where you're on the outer court and then the court of the women, you know, the court of the men. 
and then the priests, and then the Holy of Holies. Well, taking the communion is the Holy of Holies. Yeah, I love that as, it's not an image I had thought of before, but taking communion as the Holy of Holies, that's really helpful and eye-opening in a lot of ways. I'm excited to kind of trace that through different themes. Um, but I, I want to follow up with something that you anticipate in your book. It, it's not going to be a question that's new to you, but you, you write in your book that some may push back on using Isaiah 6 as kind of this lens through which to see early Christian worship, and that they might prefer what you write, uh, what you call the bare naked New Testament text, only going off that to get a picture of early Christian worship. Because mm -hmm. admittedly, there is some gap before we have some of these uh, early Eastern liturgies that we have the fragments and all of that. So talk me through your decision to view early worship through this lens and why we ought to go deeper than what's contained just in the 27 books of the New Testament to get a picture of early Christian worship. Sure. Well, the problem is, of course, that the 27 books are not written to talk about liturgy, right? They're written to tell us the gospel of Christ and how to live together in the church. And so what we find about worship is quite fragmentary and pragmatically oriented. So when Paul talks about when you get together, one of you will have this, one of you will have that, he's not actually giving a full-blown description of how they worshipped. He's talking about the elements that are important in order to correct the abuses that he's been seeing there. He's doing a corrective thing. Um, and we need to remember that in Acts, we're told that quite a few of the priests were obedient to the word. And that the early Christians continued to worship in the temple. And that St. Paul's practice was to go first to the synagogue, and then when he was rejected, to go to the Gentiles. So there was never a wholesale rejection of Old Testament worship. And in fact, if you look at some liturgists, like, say, Gregory Dix, you'll see that we can see traces of both the synagogue and the temple worship services in the early services. A very early, um, a very early um, document that we have, not much later, or maybe even overlapping with some of the books of the New Testament, is called the Didache, which means simply the teaching. And the Didache describes what happens, the kind of prayers that are used in um, in the liturgy of the time of the first century. And there's a lot of connection there between that and the Old Testament themes. Reference to the vine, um, which Paul also use in, it, it uses in Romans 10 through 12, um, all kinds of things there. Yeah, so um, some people would find it inadequate um, to go to the Old Testament, but I think it's inadequate to take to assume that the New Testament texts tell us everything that there is to know about worship. Um, they tell us some things, but not everything. Yeah, it's fascinating. I was talking with someone who was planting a church, and he was expressing a, a bit of frustration in a way, in a lighthearted way, but of, you know, couldn't the New Testament have just told us a little more about how to do all of this? Which is a really interesting insight into what the New Testament is and is not doing that it 
it's intriguing to me, and I think people might find this intriguing at the very least, to know that like you don't have this manual on how to start a church or how to run a, a worship service or a liturgy in the New Testament. And I, I think, as you mentioned, it's because there's all this background and context that's going on that they're somewhat taking for granted. And also, it's somewhat against the nature of what they're doing in their letters and in their gospels. They're, they're simply not giving you detailed instructions on like, okay, here is the, the order of service, if you will. But it's interesting um, that when people try to create this just from the text of the New Testament, it's really difficult. There's not mm-hmm. that much to go on. And so I think it makes great sense to look at the Old Testament as well and to mm-hmm. bring in that kind of second temple Jewish worship that would have been um, going on at the time with this priest coming in. So fascinating point there. Additionally, though, in your book, you mm-hmm. note that we want to be good historians and, and we mm-hmm. don't want to overdo this. And you right. use this term from Paul Bradshaw of a pan-liturgical impulse, which is a kind of desire to see liturgy everywhere, that we just read that back into the text and something Mm -hmm. that could seem very benign on the surface, we find, oh, that's liturgical and everything's liturgical. How do we have an appreciation for the context, recognize the Old Testament influences and the Second Temple Jewish influences while not becoming the person that just sees liturgy everywhere, where maybe in some circumstances it's not? So, so I bring Paul Bradshaw up uh, as a little bit of self-chastening because in my book I suggest, and it's just a suggestion, okay? I wouldn't go to the stake for this. But in my book I suggest that Acts 2.42 actually might be giving us the broad outline of first century worship. You remember where it says that the believers dedicated themselves or gave themselves to, and there were several things, the teaching and communion of the apostles is the first couplet. And the second one is the breaking and the prayers of the bread. And that's actually how the Greek reads. It it doesn't come across that way in some translations. But so what I'm suggesting is that perhaps what we have is an indication that they had Um, a gathering together in which they gathered around the apostles and heard their words and got the teaching. But then they also had the second part of the service, that is the communion service having to do with the breaking of the bread and the prayers concerning the bread. I would not, as I say, go to the stake for this. And so that's why I brought in Paul Bradshaw and and said, this is just a suggestion. I don't think I'm pushing it, but I may be. Um, One of the reasons why I'm very concerned about not doing this is that I come from a tradition that I think did that. So, for example, the Methodist tradition argues that because the apostles first were baptized during the lifetime of Jesus and only afterwards did they receive the Holy Spirit as a second work work of grace, so too that should be the pattern for us in our Christian lives today. um, That... Uh, There is salvation first, and then there's a second work of grace, sanctification, which can happen instantaneously. In fact, that is the pattern. 
And so in my childhood and my teenage years, I was looking for this very particular second work of grace that would instantly sanctify me. And it became like looking for the unicorn. It was really elusive and it was um, it was disturbing because I never got to the point where I felt that I had attained it. And I think that that comes from looking for something um, that isn't the scriptures aren't meaning to do. They're not meaning to say follow the pattern of the apostles who first were baptized and then were baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's just what happens in history. That's how it works out. But it's not given to us as a prescription. And uh, I could I could multiply examples of this. So that's why I think we have to be really careful that we allow the scriptures to be read for how they're supposed to be read and allow a narrative to be a narrative. Nevertheless, sometimes I think that we can see um, hints as to how they worshipped. Um, something else that I wanted to say too is, it's not just going back to the Old Testament, it's also recognizing that there are some things that are part of the life of the church that aren't written down. St. Paul commended the Corinthians for obeying him in the things that they'd received by letter, and the things that they had heard him say by word. And so, for example, the tradition of baptizing three dunks, three immersions, because of the threefold name, that's something that the church has kept as a tradition, verbally, that we believe goes right back to the apostles. But it's not detailed in the scriptures because the New Testament is not supposed to be, as you say, a manual. And there are many other things. Why do we pray? to the Holy Spirit. There's not a single um, uh, example of that in the scriptures. There are prayers to Jesus, but not to the Holy Spirit. That's part of our tradition. We know that the Holy Spirit is one of the three persons of the, uh, of the Godhead and that he cares about us. And so we pray, but we have no pattern for that. So ongoing tradition and um, that which is led by the Holy Spirit is also part of what makes worship worship. I'm so glad you brought that up the idea of scripture and tradition. In fact, it was almost the conversation that we ended up having today because you've written another wonderful book on this and maybe sometime in the future we'll cover that. But I'd encourage people to go check it out if they want to dive more into that. So as we talk about what the New Testament says, what it doesn't say, the tradition around it as well, I think it's worth noting that while some have this impulse of and I just wish the New Testament said more about worship, like that the bare naked text was just a little more fully fleshed out on what goes on in a worship gathering. Those very same people, I think, sometimes might wish that the New Testament said a couple less things about worship because there's some difficult texts specifically in Paul around worship. And so two of those that I want to look at that you talk about in your book have to do with closed communion and they have to do with head coverings, which mm -hmm. seem very odd to us in our in our somewhat kind of pluralistic modern context and are also very egalitarian modern context. We mm -hmm. rub up against these culturally. And in a lot of ways, people wish we could kind of get rid of those texts or functionally do in a lot mm -hmm. of cases. So you categorize these two teachings under the principle of entering with integrity. So... I receive a lot of comments from people both online and in conversations I have personally that they'd be Orthodox or they'd be Catholic if it wasn't for closed communion. That's just kind of the line that they cannot cross. 
How do you see closed communion tying in with this overarching theme of worship as entrance? And why is closed communion maybe actually a good thing or a necessary thing? Yeah. It's really difficult. And for me, this was very painful when I became Orthodox to realize that I would be effectively breaking communion with brothers and sisters that I had um, worshipped with. Uh, That was true both um, in my context at PTS because I attended uh, chapel services there and I no longer took communion, although I would pray with them. And um, it it also would be the case if I go back and visit my my Anglican friends. So it's painful. But it seems to me that the pain is reflecting something that's real. And that is that though all those who name Christ are not part of the same body and do not believe even some of the essential things. Now, of course, everybody has a different idea of what they will call essential, where they will draw the line between what's essential and what's not essential. And my dear friend Robert Gagnon and I have arguments about this, and he really thinks that anybody who who accepts that that Jesus is Lord and and worships and has been baptized, that's the essential and they should be accepted to, to communion. So this is certainly something that bothers people. I guess what I would say is that open communion is the innovation. No one practiced it until, say, the last hundred years or so, right? So it's it's not just Orthodox and and, and uh, Catholics. They're they're the holdouts. Everybody else, you had to have tickets to take communion in a Reformed church, for example, or a Lutheran church. Um, and and if you if you went traveling, you had to take a letter of recommendation from your pastor. So why did the church do this? Why this caution? Is it just to be mean? Is it just to say we're in and you're out? I think not. I think it's paying close attention to the warning of 1 Corinthians 11, that communion can bring harm to those who take it, not coming from the right place. And so it's a kind of a protection. And by the time we get, so so Paul gives a warning, by the time we get to the Didache, which as I say is either overlapping or very, very close, they actually say, say no one may take communion uh, who is not baptized. And of course, we're not talking about multiple churches back there. We're talking about anybody who's not a Christian cannot take communion. Um, it's for the sake of the outsider and also for the holiness of the act. Because for Orthodox and Catholics, this isn't just a memorial service. This is coming into contact with the Holy One. This is taking into oneself the very body and blood of Christ. Um, And so um, it's not ever to be done lightly. And Orthodox will excommunicate themselves if they're not in charity with their neighbor, if they haven't fasted, if they haven't gone to confession recently. Um, They see it as a very serious thing to go and to receive uh, the holy mysteries. So that's part of it. I think the other part is that we're in this individualistic age. This is where we started. And so who takes communion is a larger part of discipline. And um, the father of the church, the priest, has a responsibility to make sure that people who approach the chalice to take the mysteries aren't going to harm themselves and aren't also going to make a sham of this holy thing. And so it's part of being transparent with each other, um, 
communicating with the priest with regards to when, when there are problems and praying them through, um, being in charity with the people in your community and so on. Um, it, it's not just those who aren't Orthodox or the same with the Catholic. It's not just that. Um, it has to do with what's going on there. I would say it would be like asking, saying it's perfectly okay for an unmarried couple um, who are attracted to each, to each other to, um, to be intimate prior to marriage. It's premature it, and, and it can cause harm. Thanks for that. I want to turn to the second of the, I don't want to call them problem texts, but I think that's how people might view them, if you will, of the difficult teachings of Paul on uh, early Christian worship. And that is around female head coverings, which I don't know that this one has as strong of an emotional reaction for people today. Maybe it does. As much as it just feels downright strange to people this far removed. It's just, where is Paul coming from? And then there are suspicions of, does this represent some type of, um, you know, patriarchal society that's in or patriarchal theology that's going to downgrade women? And this is this bad? What what's kind of underneath this? In any case, you note that many people just simply write this off today. It's just a cultural artifact left over from the first century, and let's just keep moving. End of discussion. So you recognize that there are cultural forces at play here, just as you know is good hermeneutical principles in general, right? But you also call us to not just keep moving, but to look at the deeper theological teaching here. So what do you see being taught when by Paul when he's talking about female head coverings in worship? Okay, so first of all, it is a cultural thing. And we have to realize that women in that culture wore head coverings normally. So what Paul is just talking about is whether you should take off your head covering in worship because there's no distinction between male and female in Christ or whether a woman continues to be a woman and keeps the head covering on. And it gives cultural reasons, right? But it's not the same question as whether we should deliberately put on a head covering when we go into worship, uh, which is something that women don't wear hats anymore. They did back in the 1920s, you know, when they were dressed up, but but we don't do that um, except to make a fashion statement today. So it's a different, it's a different, we're in a different context. Nevertheless, he does also give some theological reasons for why he's saying this. And unfortunately, one of them is not going to please people. And it does have to do with the P word, the patriarchal word, that he talks about the father being the head of the son. So there's a headship even within the Holy Trinity. But remember, there's also a mutuality. And Jesus is fully God. The son is fully God as is the spirit, as is the father, but the father is the source, right? It's from the father that the son eternally is, uh, eternally um, uh, becomes the son. And it's from the father that the spirit is eternally spirated, right? So that that's complicated because not uh, all three of them who are one have no beginning and no end. Nevertheless, there is a principle of, headship there 
a logical principle of headship. And he then says in the same way, though male and female are mutual, though male and female need each other, though um, they depend upon one another and um, from uh, there's no male that comes without a female now, just as, there, as uh, Eve, Eve came from Adam. So he has all that mutuality language. Nevertheless, there is a headship of, um, of the husband uh, um, with regards to the wife. And I think what's going on here is um, that there is a kind of an iconic um, role that's being given to males and to females in worship. It's as though females are to cover their heads to remind all human beings, not just women, but everybody, that they have a head, that God is God and they are not. Whereas men stand up straight to tell all human beings, not just the men, but look, we have been made free in Christ. And there's this, this kind of antiphonal, holy, 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 that the women sing while the men say, the whole earth is now full of his glory because of what Christ has done. And they say it back and forth to each other. And they do it within um, the incarnational, natural, created order that God has um, placed us in for the time being. So, yes, there is a kind of hierarchy here that's being acknowledged, but along with the hierarchy goes this absolutely mysterious mutuality that we see in the Holy Trinity itself and therefore between men and women. Now, whether a woman wants to wear a head covering in order to show that you know, maybe there's some argument for doing that in a day and age which is confused about the relationship between men and women. But again, we don't naturally wear hats. So if a woman says, it just feels really foreign for me to stick this scarf or this thing on my head, I don't do that anywhere else. I, I, think, this is, I think this is something that there could be a conversation about. But the principle that we all have ahead that we acknowledge, that's, I think, what... Uh, um, what Paul is, uh, should be listened to. And by the way, the angels themselves, close to God, they cover while they cry, holy, 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 even the angels. Thank you for that. There is many layers of nuance there, which I think make for just a wise answer, and I appreciate that. You move in your book to discuss going from worship as entrance, looking at Old Testament, New Testament. You talk then about how this impacts liturgies in the East and the West for the sake of time today. We're not going to survey the West, but I just want to talk a little bit about the East, and you've already done a brilliant job of showing how Isaiah shows up in these liturgies, so I won't ask you to do that again. But I'd be curious, maybe just on a, on a broader level, what are some of the distinctive marks of early Eastern liturgies that kind of uh, distinguish them from their Western counterparts, and, and how have those been carried through to today? Well, there is again the uh, two movement entrance. Now the Western liturgy does have the liturgy of the word followed by the liturgy of the sacrament, but there is not this same sense of moving further up and further in to use the C.S. Lewis expression as you go through the worship. And that's very clear in orthodoxy that um, there is a, gradual approach to the most holy place and the most holy time to the one who is holy 
um, when we come to the time where um, the uh, where the Eucharist is just about to begin, communion is just about to begin, the priest says, the holy things are for the holy. And the congregation answers back to him, one is holy, one is the Lord Jesus Christ. So there is this sense of be holy because I am holy. Um, that, that is very, very strong in Eastern worship. The other thing is the whole thing is sung. So the sense of hearing is really important. And sometimes the priest will be singing one thing and the congregation will be singing something that's complimentary. And that's okay because they have different jobs. The priest will be preparing for Eucharist, will be praying for the people, and the people will be doing prayers for the world. Um, but the singing is um, from the beginning to the end and pretty seamless. There are some parts that the congregation knows, and then there are some parts that are more complicated that the choir does. But in, in the worship services that I've loved the most, it's where the people sing the whole thing with the, with the choir from beginning to end, and that sometimes happens. And I know little three- and four-year-olds, some of them my grandchildren, who can sing the entire liturgy from the beginning to the end, and they know the whole thing without any words because they don't read yet. And that's quite wonderful. Um, also, the visual and uh, um, the, the, the sense of smell um, and, and touch is very important in Eastern worship. Uh, so we don't just have a few stained glass windows and a few statues and a few um, pictures, but you know our entire walls are plastered with icons of the Old and the New Testament, uh, reminding us of the people of God and reminding us most particularly of Christ and of the bearing uh, his being born by, by uh, the Virgin Mary. Um, and at the same time, the feeling of the candles, um, the smell of the incense, all of that triggers for those who associate it with worship, the holiness, a sense of the holiness of God. I can remember walking down from the choir once when I had was going through a really difficult time and getting to the vestibule where there were all these candles shining, of people that had, they'd lit in them um, as they came in um, uh, and they were praying for various people. And immediately being comforted by the fact that I was surrounded by the prayers of the saints. It was kind of a pictorial um, representation of what we see in Revelation uh, 4, where the elders are presenting the prayers of the saints in their incense bowls before God. So those are really important. I think the other thing too is that the worship service itself tends to do the entire story of salvation. Whereas if you compare that with the Western um, liturgy, their genius, the Western liturgy, uh, liturgy's genius is to be them thematic, to really um, shape everything according to the season or according to the celebration of the day. So if you have a saint's day, there will be numerous uh, references of that in various places in the, in the liturgy. We have some of that in the East too, but we're very, very keen to tell the entire story from beginning to end. And uh, the, the service does that. Thank you so much for all of those distinctives. 
I particularly love just imagining your grandchildren who cannot read but being able to sing an entire service. They would put me to shame in the Orthodox liturgies I've been to and felt thoroughly confused at the uh, different parts to participate in, which is completely natural. But it's just a beautiful thing to think of kids that young being able to participate so fully in the service, especially as I reflect on my own experience growing up in church. I wouldn't have even been a part of the main adult service. So for them to be that thoroughly incorporated is something really special. Yeah. We and don't that, eject we don't eject them into youth uh, <laughs> uh, worship or Sunday school. They do that at a different time. Yeah. <laughs> It brings me to where I want to kind of wrap up our conversation on worship, and this has just been brilliant. Um, and it, it's that idea of participation. And so we talked very early on in this conversation that we often come to our worship gathering services, liturgies, etc., with the wrong mindset of what what can I get out of this? How can I be fed? Will this produce the right experience for me, etc.? And I want to kind of offer an inverse of that as we finish this of based on what worship is namely that it's entrance what advice would you have for the audience and how they might participate in the liturgies and services that they find themselves taking part in um so going to worship begins at home before you even leave. It's really important if you possibly can. It's hard for young parents, but it's really important to try to have a brief quiet time where you're silent before the Lord and you give this day to him and you put aside all the troubles and the distractions that you have. I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing would be if there's something between you and a member of the congregation that should have been dealt with before Sunday morning. <laughs> and if it, if it can't be, then you have to at least talk with the Lord about it so that you're going with a clean heart. Um, saying the prayers, saying the Psalms, having a brief rule of prayer that, that you know really well and that can be done, um, uh, that can be done like you would eat a meal, I think is really important. And, and uh, um, you know, when you're driving there, the kind of music that you have on, if you have anything on that shouldn't be distracting or pulling you away from where you're going, you're headed somewhere, you're on pilgrimage. Um, and we Orthodox, you know, the minute that we hit the church grounds, we're, we're making the sign of the cross. It's, you know, we're because we're entering into a holy time and that, that there have to be equivalents of that kind of thing for people in other communions. And then I would say, really try not to be the critic when you're in the worship service. That's harder, I think, when the prayers are extemporaneous and you're not quite sure whether you're going to be able to say oh, amen, maybe you've got somebody who, who, who says something not quite right, but um, to give that to the Lord and to realize that we're all standing before him and we're not performing for each other, I think is really super important. And um, to spend your time praying for people who are around you mm -hmm. rather than being distracted and then bring your mind back to the worship. 
That is wonderful advice and so helpful. This has been an absolute pleasure and joy. And and the part of me that that grew up as you know, kind of the production director at a megachurch wants to wrap the conversation right there with a nice bow from worship to worship. Ah, it's so great. But I, I want to take just a slight left turn before we end here uh, to talk a little bit uh, about creativity and about uh, fiction, of all yeah. things, which people might not see coming. But here's the connection for those that maybe don't see it. Uh, one, the connection is that I wanted to. But two, uh, the, the connection is, you know, so often for me growing up, my thoughts, and again, my mom was the creative director at this large church, and I spent my childhood in a church sound booth in like a 1,100-seat auditorium. That's what I knew as church. And so mm-hmm. Sunday morning, our thoughts were filled with the creativity of the service. And each week, how do we do something new? How do we do something yes. special? How do we create an experience that will bring people back? And the f- person who came for the first time, they're going to be wowed, et cetera, et cetera. That was creativity, and church was the, the locus of our creative outlet. Now, in this model that we're talking about here, specifically in an Orthodox liturgy, your job is not to come up each week and create something new and to use all of your creative energy on redesigning the liturgy each week. And so I want to talk about how creativity has shown up in your life. And I imagine you can relate with this somewhat as well as having been a music director in in the Anglican church there, even though it's a different context. But you've taken... Your, your brilliant mind, which people will see in your scholarly work, but you applied it to children and teen fiction, which I find fascinating because personally, I find fiction to be such a powerful medium to, to shape how we view the world. I think we underestimate it. But mm-hmm. given the number of times that my guests reference C.S. Lewis, like further up and further in or, or Tolkien or any number of fiction and how it shaped us, I think it's really powerful. So I'd love to know how you got into writing fiction and what what do you see as this role of fiction in shaping our Christian imagination? Right. So, I mean, I'm so I'm in such awe of Lewis. I don't know why, uh, how I ever got the nerve to try to start writing myself something fictional. But when you've got 22 grandchildren, you do tell them stories. And it just kind of happened that I got this idea that I would um, take every one of the grandchildren at some point and have them meet fictionally the saint or the righteous person for whom they're named so there's time travel that goes on in these stories they're whisked away in time and space and you know there are various mechanisms there's sig- signals that this is going to happen i don't have a i don't have a wardrobe but there are there are two uh, deer that appear and uh, that's kind of a sign that something's going to happen and then they're brought home by a peacock but um i really took heart what C.S. Lewis said when he said, sometimes a fairy tale can say it best. I think that's true. I think that mysterious things, um, the longings that we have, uh, theological truths that can only be described by putting a whole bunch of propositions together, some of which seem to contradict each other, those kind of things can be best told in stories. And, um, There's something about being a Christian that's far more than simply assenting to propositions. It's recognizing that um, we are being joined to the story of God's people that doesn't just go back to the early church. It goes right back to Israel. It goes right back to Abraham. It goes right back to the garden. Um, And so... I knew that as a child, 
I had been brought to believe in my heart and my imagination in Christ long before I understood all the theological ins and outs of the creed. And I think that that can happen to people at various times in their life, that they can be drawn to the truth if they receive it in a way that's not necessarily just cognitive, but affects all of what they are, including their imagination. And that's what I want to try my hand at. I don't know if I'm very, very good at it, but I love doing it. It's a lot of fun. That's wonderful. That my my next thing to do is to read one of your children's books. It always delights me when I see that my guests are engaged in writing fiction. It's something. I'm going to show you a picture of yes. the cover of the. That's the first. That's the first one. Where are we? Here we are. Wonderful. Yeah, you got it. Beyond, Beyond the, the white fence. fence. Yep. Awesome. Yes, I I look forward to checking out that one's from Ancient Faith, I believe. Correct. Mm -hmm. All right, and mm -hmm. I'll put links for this in the description uh, for the right. audience to check that out. But Edith, this has been such a pleasure. We'll wrap the show as I always do with what I just call the final four, which are four kind of rapid fire questions. You can answer in a sentence, a word, however you'd like. But I want to say thank you again so much for your time today. So the first question is, what has been the most fruitful habit or spiritual discipline in your life? So completely opposite to Lewis, who hated corporate worship. For me, it's attending worship regularly, even when I don't feel like it. That's it. Wonderful. <laughs> Yeah. Outside the Bible, what has been the most impactful book on your life? Two. <laughs> For the Life of the World by Alex, mm -hmm. Father Alexander Schmemann, Until We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis. An incredibly underrated Lewis book. I'm so glad yeah. you mentioned it. Okay. You're having coffee with your undergrad or early grad school self. What's one piece of advice you give her for her future in theology? Stop worrying about what people <laughs> think about you. That's wonderful. The final question, which I delight in asking all my guests, is simply, what is the gospel? Well, from Romans chapter 1, 3 to 4, Jesus, the Messiah, crucified and risen, is Lord. And then I want to add, and is calling you into his body, hmm. the church. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Humphrey, this has been a pleasure. I thank you so much for this. And I want to thank the audience who's watching this sometime in the future for your time as well. I don't take it lightly. And I'll end, as I always do, by simply saying, until next time, be on the lookout for more videos. But far more importantly than that, go out and love God and love others, because truly, above all else, that will change the world.